Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When human beings seek a sign from the Lord, the problem is twofold. First, we think of a sign as proof, making our trust in God's wisdom conditional. Second, because we do not trust this wisdom, the signs we desire in the world become a reflection of our own vanity. Remember, this is the Gospel of Matthew. The eye is the lamp of the body. If the light in your eye is idolatry, you will find amazement in wickedness and scoff at righteousness. But if the lamp of your eye is filled with the light of Torah, you will see things correctly the way Scripture wants you to see them, and you will be able to read the signs. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 297 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We did an entire series on the book of Jonah. We've talked about the sign that was given to the prophet Jonah on many episodes over the years. Everyone assumes that the sign that is given is the three days in the belly of the whale, or the tree. And what I would say is that these symbols in the story reflect the content of the sign because they're playing out the implication of the sign that was given. But of course, right from the outset, it's the word of the Lord that appeared to Jonah. The word is the sign. In Matthew, this falls right on this passage, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. And last time we talked about works and words and the fruit and how the spirit that lies as the basis of both so that the word informs the actions that one takes. If one has good actions, they're informed by a good word. And if you have bad actions, they're informed by a bad word. And that word is kind of invigorated by that spirit. Jonah, after he struggled with God and didn't want to do what God wanted him to do, when he finally approached the Ninevites, it took a very simple sentence, three days and this city will be overturned. That's all it took for the entire Ninevite city to repent and to be obedient and subservient to this God whom wasn't even really their God. Of course, this is the God of the entire universe, but the Ninevites had their own gods they followed. But when this prophet comes from this unknown God, preaches a very simple word, they listen to the word with no evidence but the word itself. These people, these Pharisees, these scribes, and the crowds get to see the 
miracles and the wonders that Jesus is performing, but they don't listen to the word. Whereas the Ninevites had no miracles or wonders, but only the word, and were infinitely more faithful than these crowds, Pharisees, and scribes. The other important thing to keep in mind, both in Jonah, as you've outlined, Richard, but more broadly in the biblical text, when we talk about seeing a sign, most of us think about it in the same way that the crowds in Matthew and Mark think about signs and wonders. We think about the miracle, we think about the amazing thing, and then our enthusiasm is misplaced. We're easily fooled. And it relates to this idea in Matthew that the credit goes to God for all things. We never take credit ourselves. In this statement, it's understood that the commandment gets the credit. It's the commandment that put the work in you. It's the commandment that controls you. So you get no praise for whatever good thing is accomplished. Likewise, you have to think about miracles in the Gospel of Matthew in the same way. The miracle comes from the commandment, so the credit goes to the commandment. The commandment controls what you see in Matthew. So if you look at a miracle or an exorcism, as we heard in this chapter, and the word controls how you see that event, that event becomes a biblical sign. But that can also be true of something mundane. As you recall in the Gospel of Mark, with the widow's might, the Lord saw something mundane, but because his father's teaching controlled how he saw it, it became something majestic. That's a biblical sign. Now, you can look at a miracle of Jesus and see it from the light that's in your lamp, not the scriptural light that the commandment puts in you, and you will see something wicked. It won't be a biblical sign. It will be a kind of sign, but it will reflect your idolatry. So this point about the word being the sign in Jonah is critical because it then controls how Jonah should understand his sojourn in the belly of the whale. It then controls how Jonah should understand the tree that God grew up quickly and then destroyed the next day. Now, the trick of the literature is that the reader hearing the story of Jonah should figure this out, because we are being trained as addressees both of Jonah and Matthew to replace the darkness with the light of God's instruction so that the lamp of our eye can read the signs correctly. That's why this is important. This comes on the heels of the showdown with the Pharisees over their misreading of the signs with respect to exorcism. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. You just saw a sign and you read it incorrectly, and now you're asking him for a sign? If the correct commandment isn't controlling how you see the world and how you act, Jesus could do somersaults. You're going to still see Beelzebul. You took the words right out of my mouth. The scribes and the Pharisees sin doubly here. They are not supposed to ask for a sign. They're supposed to listen to the word. But as you said, Father, they got a sign, and they couldn't understand the <laughs> sign. 
So <laughs> it's it, actually, it's really comical. It is comical. It's just amazing how silly they look. Yeah. I mean, it's absurd. They have missed so many of the points that Jesus has been trying to make. The ignorance has to be willful at this point. I mean, they're clowns. They even call him teacher, the daskala. Give us a sign. When does this make sense? I mean, when do you go into a classroom and say, show us what you know, then I'll be impressed and then I'll learn from you. But the piano teacher would say, if I play this, what are you impressed by? Because I know more than you anyway. I can hear things that you can't hear. How about you just learn to play like I do? because you don't know whether I'm good or not, because you're a student. This is the trap that people get into. They want to feel whether the person is knowledgeable or not before they have the knowledge to evaluate whether they actually know or not. It's mind-boggling. But this is the state that the scribes and the Pharisees are in. Scripture is given in order to guide our steps and correct our sight and correct our speech. They are instead interested in getting something. They want proof, but it doesn't work that way. It's the other way around. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. You're looking for proof instead of giving your trust the way the Ninevites did. Remember, Jonah didn't trust, but the Ninevites trusted. So he's putting the Pharisees and Jonah in the same camp in verse 39 and saying, you need to trust the commandment, go and teach the Ninevites, and this is what you should say. And if you say what you are given to say, it will correct your steps and it will clear your vision. You will be able to see and to speak, and you won't need proof because you will have trusted and you won't have to ask for a sign because suddenly you'll be able to read the signs. That's the trick. There are signs. A sign is something in Scripture that bounces the biblical teaching back on you. You project the biblical teaching into the world, and suddenly it's not an old woman who's just giving a penny. It becomes the majesty and the glory of the Father revealed in something very meek and unnoticeable otherwise. It's a beautiful example on Mark that helps illustrate this point. When you understand the Bible as the lens through which you see the world, it shows you how God is continually teaching us. Now, you can't just look out in the world and see things. It requires the Bible as the reference. You humble yourself and submit yourself to his wisdom, which you can see manifested in the world when you're reading it in a scriptural way. It's the same thing with the example I used a moment ago. If you go to the piano teacher and say, yeah, you know, I don't know if I really like the way that you play or not. The piano teacher says, look, I play better than you. I know I have something to teach you, so sit down and start learning. But the arrogant student, the wicked and adulterous student, says, yeah, but I, you know, I, I want to feel like this when I play, and I don't feel like this when I listen to you. The student has no idea what they're talking about because they're basing it on their hormonal reaction to the music, not on the basis of wanting to become a better piano player. If the scribes and the Pharisees actually followed Torah, they would want to know the knowledge of God, as is said in Hosea 4, the knowledge of God and faithfulness. Once they have these things, then they can be 
said to be following what Scripture is saying, but they aren't interested in the knowledge because they're still evaluating how they feel about what Jesus is saying. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And here the critical point is that Christians misread this comparison. Matthew is not comparing Jesus and Jonah. Matthew is comparing an unrighteous man who deserved to be in the belly of the sea monster with the Son of Man who is in the sea monster as a righteous man who was still condemned according to the law in Matthew. Again, you always have to work in the Pauline context. Jonah deserved this abandonment. Jesus did not deserve it, to put it in modern terms, but will submit to it. And because he submits to this humiliation, which Jonah deserved for his disobedience, because he submits to it, there is a consequence, and Matthew will very soon shift to judgment in verse 41. In both instances, God is the one who controls the word, and no human being has the ability to stop the word. When Jonas is rebellious and goes the wrong way and takes the ship to go the opposite way from Nineveh, God will sink that ship, find a whale, spit him back out on shore so that he goes to Nineveh. It is not Jonas's decision. The word itself, animated by the Spirit, will ensure that the word lands in Nineveh. The same thing with Jesus. The entire might of the Roman Empire can bury the word underground when it crucifies and buries Jesus. But God himself shows that those actions of human beings cannot cover up and bury the word. The word itself is going to be animate, and the word through the Spirit is going to go to all the nations, no matter what human beings do to control it. The three days in the whale and the three days in the tomb are simply the human ways of trying to stop the word that are overcome by God. What's interesting, too, is that you have the Word putting a righteous man and an unrighteous man in the same situation in verse 40. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jonah didn't want to do the work of the commandment, but he was forced to submit, and it produced a result. And the Ninevites themselves, despite Jonah, perhaps even without Jonah in the story, were willing to submit to the word even after it left the prophet behind. These individuals, these outsiders who, according to the standard of the Pharisees, are unrighteous, these characters in the story can read the sign correctly because they allow Scripture to control how they look at the world. They can read the signs. So what's ominous about verse 41, the Pharisees can't read the signs. They can't tell that someone righteous, someone greater than Jonah the unrighteous, is present, someone who never disobeyed his father. The Ninevites do not see Jonah spit out from the whale. The nations do not see Jesus rising from the dead. Nobody gets to see that sign. 
And so just like you said, Father, it's disobedient to need this sign. The Ninevites get no sign. When the nations hear the disciples preach, there is no sign. Paul is not going around to the Corinthians performing wondrous works. All he gives them is the word. It's only on the basis of the word that people must repent. The Ninevites got no sign whatsoever and repented. And this is what will condemn the Pharisees and the scribes and the crowds because they needed nothing. All they needed to do was hear. And Jesus is so much more senior than Jonah and has that much more authority, but they still won't listen. The Ninevites showed that it was possible if you just hear two sentences from Jonah that you can repent and be righteous based on that. But these people want more. And that's the thing is the disobedience demands more rather than simply the word says this, so we're going to do it. No, it's not that simple. And when you make it any more complicated than that, this is where the disobedience that you described comes from, Father. The queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The parallel with the Queen of the South and the Ninevites is clear. A willingness, even a desire, to hear the Lord's instruction. It's interesting because the Queen of the South came to test Solomon's wisdom. And, of course, Solomon himself was not righteous. We've talked at length about how the construction of the temple was the greatest sin in the biblical story how the election of a king was the great sin that preceded the sin of the temple. That is what Solomon represents. Now, he's salvaged or salvageable to the extent that God provided him the wisdom of his instruction. And so when the queen of the south stood up to test that wisdom, she received wisdom. And now this queen of Sheba is going to be sent to judge the Pharisees in chapter 12 of Matthew. And it's bad news for them because you have the queen of the south and the Ninevites, all of them technically outsiders who are bringing the judgment to the inside of the inside of the holy of holies of the religious establishment and putting it to shame. The queen of Sheba simply heard that Solomon might be wise which was enough for her to set out across the Arabian Peninsula to go and listen to what Solomon had to say. And the scribes and Pharisees say, Jesus has a reputation of being wise, but I don't know about that. Let me listen to him. Let me see a few signs, and then I'll decide if I think he's all that or not. The Queen of Sheba heard the reputation, and that was enough. She set out to go and listen. She put together an entire expedition to hear this wisdom. Again, hearing that the word might be spoken was enough for her to want to gain wisdom. For the scribes and the Pharisees and the crowds, it's not enough. For the Ninevites, simply hearing that they might be overthrown was enough for them to repent. But for the scribes, the Pharisees, and the crowds, maybe, maybe not. We'll have to see and weigh and see how we feel about it and have a back and forth and a dialogue and discuss. And once we discuss, maybe we'll come to an understanding where I finally admit that you might know something that I don't. And this is exactly how people work with their priests 
and with their pastors and with any religious leader. They want to test them and see if they really know what they're talking about before they submit to what they teach, as opposed to say, well, I heard he's got something good to say. He reads scripture, and I know that in the service they read scripture, this is enough, and I have something to learn because I know that scripture is above me and always teaches wisdom. That's it. If the scripture is there, you don't have to worry about the person and whether you like the person or how the person makes you feel. You simply learn, and then from that learning, you go and you do based on this word that's been implanted in you. The funny thing about verse 42, Richard, is that the queen of the South in Second Chronicles chapter 9 understood that something greater than Solomon provided the instruction. And the Pharisees don't realize that the anointed one of that God is present that he's doing the work of his father. They can't see it. But she understood in Second Chronicles that God blessed Solomon with his wisdom. And she understood this from testing that wisdom. Listen to verse 8. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne. She's acknowledging that the throne doesn't belong to Solomon, setting you on his throne as king for the Lord your God, because your God loved Israel, establishing them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. Not therefore, he made you king over them. Therefore, he made you king over them to do his justice and righteousness, which is the commandment. She is confessing in two chronicles that it is the scroll of the Torah that governs Israel wisely, and the Pharisees want to govern themselves. And that, I'm afraid, is a rotten state of affairs in the Gospel of Matthew. Thanks very much for your time this week. Thank you very much, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.